Hi, everyone. This Quarium episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, let's dive into this thought-provoking topic. Welcome to Mind the Gap. I'm Tyler Larson, a hospitalist at the Los Angeles VA. And I'm Satya Patel, also a hospitalist at the Los Angeles VA. So today on Mind the Gap, we're talking about everyone's favorite topic, inpatient diabetes management. This is Mind the Gap, so we're talking about DKA, right? (laughs) Not exactly the gap I wanted to focus on today, Satya. I actually wanted to talk about what the heck to do when managing type 2 diabetes in the hospital. Oh, this is such a great topic. As a resident, I feel like I was taught to just hold all oral diabetes meds on admission. I will tell you that if you go to Israel, 60% of patients are managed with oral agents. If you go to the United Kingdom, about 40% are treated with oral agents, and they continue to use the oral agents, and they're not a goal, they add insulin. That's Dr. Guillermo Umpierrez, an endocrinologist at Emory, who has authored almost all the papers on the use of diabetes meds in the hospital. I'm really appreciative of his work, because before we looked into it for this episode, I didn't have a good grasp on what I should actually do with all those diabetes meds. Did you? What are you talking about? It's simple. You just stop the oral meds and start that insulin sliding scale. Done. That's all there is to it, right? (laughs) I don't know, Tyler. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. Sliding scale can totally feel like a set-it-and-forget-it intervention for us, but for our patients, it means getting poked anywhere from four to six times a day. Ouch, yeah. It's easy to forget how uncomfortable sliding scale can be for our patients and how much time is needed for nurses to do that many finger sticks. To get some clarity on how to approach this, let's explore some of the evidence, or lack thereof, behind the inpatient management of type 2 diabetes. So, on today's episode, we're going to tackle three questions. To start, where does the dogma of stopping metformin come from? Next up, do we need to stop all other oral diabetes meds on admission? Finally, how can we use insulin in hospitalized patients with type 2 diabetes? Satya, did you want to start us off with a case? Absolutely. So we have Mrs. Sita G. Lipton, a 74-year-old female with type 2 diabetes mellitus and hypertension, who is admitted for intermittent chest pain and dyspnea. Her blood glucose in the ER is 210. You do a med rec, and she's on the following meds for her type 2 diabetes. Metformin, gliburide, citagliptin, and empagliflozin. Ugh. I had the same reaction. It's a lot of meds. So let's say that we decide to make her NPO for a stress test in the morning. What should we do with Mrs. Lipton's diabetes meds? You know, I feel like everybody does something different. We've got so many options. Mm-hmm. We have oral meds, sliding scale, basal insulin. Where do we start? Totally agree. It's really confusing. Let's tackle metformin first. I feel like this fear of lactic acidosis has just been seared into my brain. Where does the concern for metformin-associated lactic acidosis, or what some affectionately call MALA, come from? Well, to truly understand where this comes from, we've got to take a quick pathophys detour. Oh no, here we go. Okay, okay, hear me out, hear me out. It's actually pretty interesting. A lot of the concerns about MALA largely come from fenformin, a sibling of metformin. Hold up, metformin's got a sibling? Mm -hmm. This is starting to feel like a soap opera where suddenly we discover that MALA's friend is more than just a pala. Yep, both metformin and fenformin are part of the big happy biguanide family. Tyler, can you remind me what a biguanide does? Well, like so many things, it's not completely understood. But what we do know is that biguanides inhibit pyruvate dehydrogenase, which forces cells into anaerobic metabolism. And increased anaerobic metabolism will ramp up lactate production, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. The biguanides accomplish what most medical students only dream about, 
destroying the Krebs cycle. Exactly. So yes, technically metformin increases lactate production, but the key thing to know is that the liver and kidneys can easily handle this increased lactate load. So we don't even see a change in the serum lactate levels clinically. Huh. Well, if the liver and kidneys can handle the lactate produced by metformin, what exactly did fenformin do to get such a bad rap for the entire bigonide family? It's a good question. Fenformin actually had a good run for about 20 years, but then people started to notice fenformin's association with severe lactic acidosis and ultimately was pulled from the market in the 1970s. Ugh, leave it to a big sibling to ruin absolutely everything. As an older brother, I completely understand that. <laughs> there are a few major reasons why fenformin causes such severe lactic acidosis. The first has to do with its size. Fenformin has this huge side chain, which has more affinity for binding to mitochondrial membranes than metformin does. So if I'm following along correctly, that means fenformin causes more lactate production than metformin does, right? Bingo. The second reason is that fenformin also has a longer half-life than metformin. And to make matters worse, 10% of people have defects in fenformin metabolism. And so those folks will have even more fenformin lingering around in their bodies. Hmm. Sounds like fenformin, the older sibling, might be hanging around in their parents' basement, or in this case, the bloodstream, a lot longer than expected. I can kind of see why everyone became terrified of continuing any biguanide during hospitalization. Yep. But the teaching point is that not all biguanides are the same. And even though there is a clear association between fenformin use and lactic acidosis, there really isn't any great evidence linking metformin use in lactic acidosis when it's prescribed appropriately. Yeah, and I've heard some folks question whether metformin causes lactic acidosis at all. Yep. And so to bring in some more pathophys... Okay, I'm ready this time. <laughs> metformin probably won't cause lactic acidosis because it has a relatively short half-life. So it won't linger for long periods of time to cause trouble. You know, Tyler, when prepping for this episode, a recurring theme that I noticed is that MALA was mostly seen in patients that already had lactate-predisposing conditions. The literature about MALA comes mostly from case reports in patients with kidney failure, liver failure, or metformin overdoses. Mm -hmm. The metformin kind of just feels like a bystander here. Absolutely. Aside from metformin overdoses greater than 20 grams, almost every case of MALA is in patients who have other reasons or risk factors for lactic acidosis, like decompensated heart failure. And if the case reports don't do it for you, a 2010 Cochrane review of metformin and lactic acidosis evaluated over 300 studies and found zero cases of lactic acidosis, despite looking at over 70,000 patient years of metformin use. Holy smokes, zero? That's an impressive stat. You know, one thing about that Cochrane review that I wanted to point out is that it excluded patients with the creatinine greater than 1.5, which is super relevant here since metformin is renally cleared. It's a really important point, Satya. From reviewing all this literature, the biggest thing I'm taking away is that it sounds like we can continue metformin in patients without renal dysfunction. Yeah, and as long as they don't have a lactate-producing condition, we should just continue metformin. To make sure we weren't going too rogue while thinking this through, we asked Dr. Umpierrez to weigh in. So if you're going to use metformin, you should check your creatinine levels, the GFR level, and don't take any chances if the GFR is below 45, 30, hold it. When it's between 30 to 45, you should use half those, so no more than one gram per day. So if somebody has acute kidney injury and creatinine is rising, stay out of trouble, hold the medications, and then you can restart whenever the patient is volume repleted and creatinine is stable, and that, that will be safe. Tyler, after talking to Dr. Umbiarez, I felt a lot more confident about continuing metformin for my patients without renal dysfunction or lactic acidosis. Me too. In the spirit of challenging the norm a little more, let's actually pit two dogmas against each other. 
who let the dogmas out, am I right? <laughs> I love it. The other dogma I'm referring to here is the concern for contrast-induced nephropathy. Whenever I order a CT scan with IV contrast, a little pop-up shows up that asks, is this patient taking metformin? And it ends up making me really nervous, and I sit there agonizing over what to do. I know that the true rate of contrast-induced nephropathy is hotly debated these days, but should we be holding metformin when patients are getting IV contrast studies? Well, whether or not contrast-induced nephropathy exists is a topic for a whole other episode. I agree. Fortunately for us, the American College of Radiology, or the ACR, actually has a statement about metformin and iodinated contrast studies. The ACR states that patients taking metformin are not at higher risk than other patients for contrast-induced nephropathy or lactic acidosis. Okay, so it's probably fine to give IV contrast and get that CT scan for patients taking metformin, as long as their kidney function is okay. But what about Mrs. Lipton? She's not getting a CT scan or anything, but is there a good reason to hold her metformin on admission? Well, like everything, Satya, it depends. We don't even know what her kidney function is yet, but once that's clarified, we should absolutely continue the metformin. Okay, cool. Sounds like we have a tentative plan for the metformin, but what should we do with Mrs. Lipton's other diabetes meds? In addition to metformin, Mrs. Lipton is also on gliburide, citagliptin, and empagliflozin. What are we going to do with the rest of these meds? To wrap our heads around all of this stuff, I think it'll be helpful to go over some of the major classes of diabetes meds. So in 2012, when we wrote the guidelines for Endocrine Society, we have very little data at all on the use of oral agents. So therefore, we recommended to stay away or not usually recommend to use oral agents in the hospital. Since then, there had been a large number of observational studies and a few randomized control studies suggesting that perhaps oral agents are acceptable in some circumstances. Let's start with a broad class, the incretin-based therapies. Satya, remind me, what exactly is an incretin? So Tyler, there are two main classes of incretin-based meds, glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists and dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors. Let's just call them GLP-1s and DPP-4s from here on out. I'm cool with that. And for those of you who need a refresher, the GLP-1s are your tides. Like liraglutide and exenatide. And the DPP-4s, counterintuitively, are your glyptins. Like citagliptin and allogliptin. But how do the GLP-1s and DPP-4s actually work? Well, GLP-1s and DPP-4s stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin, but only in response to elevated glucose levels. So the good thing is that if your patient is NPO, incretins won't make them hypoglycemic. Uh, that sounds like exactly what we're looking for in our hospitalized patients. I know, right? Since Mrs. Lipton is NPO for that stress test, we don't have to worry that her sugars will just drop if we continue her citagliptin. It basically does the same thing that the bolus part of a basal bolus insulin regimen does by taking care of those high sugars after eating a meal. DPP-4 works for postprandial correction because it increases insulin and suppresses glucagon. So it is about the same if you do basal plus a DPP-4 versus basal bolus because the bolus and the ciragliptin works on correction of postprandial. The DPP-4s and GLP-1s really seem like an underutilized class of medication. Kind of too good to be true, if you ask me. Are there any drawbacks? Well... If your patient has pancreatic disease, we really should pump the brakes on using DPP-4s and GLP-1s. The thinking here is that these meds excite the GLP-1 receptors in the pancreas, and so that leads to hyperplasia, and you can end up blocking pancreatic ducts. Blocking things is obviously bad, and that can lead to pancreatitis. We also asked Dr. Umpires what he's seen, especially when it comes to GLP-1 downsides. 
we use Xenotype given twice daily. And it shows that it's safe, it's effective in improving glycemic control, but it's associated with nausea and vomiting and decreased appetite. And I think there was 9 or 10% of patients who had significant nausea who discontinued the medication. So the takeaway for me is that if a patient is admitted with nausea or vomiting, don't add a GLP-1 because it can just add fuel to the fire. And if they were taking a GLP-1 before admission, you should probably hold it since it can cloud the picture. I agree. So the GLP-1s cause nausea and vomiting because they slow down gastric motility. That's why in patients with diabetic gastroparesis, I would also avoid GLP-1s. I'm with you on that. But what if our patient is already on a GLP-1 as an outpatient, and they come in for something totally unrelated to gastric discomfort? Is it safe to continue the GLP-1 on admission? But if somebody is taking a GLP-1, let's say before admission, at discharge, Definitive. I will continue with liraglutide or dulaglutide or one of the semaglutide. Without any question, I would prefer that to insulin therapy. That's great to know. Switching gears to DPP-4s, do I need to worry about anything else besides pancreatic disease? Well, for whatever reason, one of the DPP-4s, saxagliptin, actually has an FDA warning due to increased rates of heart failure hospitalizations. So I actually hold saxagliptin in patients with heart failure. Okay, Tyler, to recap, DPP-4s and GLP-1s seem pretty well tolerated in the hospital, especially because they promote insulin release only after our patients are eating that delicious pudding. Yep, but we should hold both GLP-1s and DPP-4s in pancreatic disease, especially in pancreatitis. Don't forget to pump the brakes on GLP-1s if the patient is coming in with nausea or vomiting or has gastroparesis. And finally, for DPP-4s, we need to be careful with saxagliptin and heart failure. All right, Satya, let's move on to the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, aka the SGLT2s. These prevent glucose reabsorption in the nephron, so you end up peeing out more sugar. So these are your empagliflozins and canagliflozins. Tyler, do you have a way of keeping the name straight? The way I remember the SGLT2s is that they all end in flozin, because when you take them, your glucose starts flozin all over the place. (laughs) I love it. SGLT2s act as diuretics. Hashtag flozinators. We really need to think about a patient's volume status before deciding what to do with the SGLT2. Right. So if my patient comes in with volume overload, I usually continue the SGLT2 to help with diuresis. But if my patient is hypovolemic or isn't eating all that much, I'm usually more cautious and hold the SGLT2. The SGLT2, we have no data. The, there was a, one small study published a few months ago from Germany. didn't improve much glycemic control, but it was tolerated. But the problem with SGLT2s is you have poor oral intake. There is a small but significant risk of ketoacidosis. So we all have seen this SGLT2-associated diabetic ketoacidosis. So uh, because of the volume depletion, um, we need more data on SGLT2s. Okay, let's take what we've learned and apply it to Mrs. Lipton's case. She's NPO for that stress test, so I think it would be a good idea to stop the empagliflozin, at least until we have more studies. That's not unreasonable. Why don't we move on to sulfonylureas? That sounds great. As a refresher, sulfonylureas are your glipizides and gliburides. They increase insulin release from the pancreas, regardless of oral intake. And that's exactly why sulfonylureas are notorious for having a higher risk of hypoglycemia. They aren't forgiving like GLP-1s and DPP-4s that wait until there's food in the system to release insulin. The sulfonylureas are merciless and releasing insulin regardless of your pudding intake. Savage. Since Mrs. Lipton is NPO for that stress test, let's hold her gliburide to avoid low sugars. Agreed. And let's move on to another class of medications, the thiazolidinediones. 
And I'm so glad we call them TZDs. Me too. Examples of TZDs include pyoglitazone and rosglitazone. Tyler, isn't there a Smash Mouth song with the lyrics, and all that glitazone's gold? I feel like every time we talk, the puns start coming, and they don't stop coming. hey But let's get back on track here and hit the ground running. <laughs> because TZDs reduce insulin resistance, we don't have to worry about hypoglycemia. The downside is all TZDs have a black box warning because they can cause or worsen heart failure. And that's probably why we never see anyone on these. Exactly. Okay, so to close the loop on Mrs. Lipton's med rec, we're going to wait for that creatinine to come back before we know what to do with the metformin. Mm -hmm. We're going to continue our citagliptin since it acts like bolus insulin. Mm -hmm. And we're going to hold our glyburide and empagliflozin because she's NPO. If I'm counting correctly, that means we're holding at least half of her meds. That's a lot. We better talk some contingency planning here. What the heck are we going to do if her sugars go up while she's in the hospital? Tyler, let's talk about how we can use insulin to fill in the gap we created by stopping half of Mrs. Lipton's home meds. Speaking of not opening any more gaps, what should our target sugars be in the hospital? Well, I think all of us have been taught to aim for a sweet spot of blood sugars between 140 and 180. But that's extrapolated from studies in critically ill patients. 140 to 180? Shoot, as a resident, I was happy if the average glucose was under 300. Me too. Turns out, though, the ADA guidelines actually have a grade A recommendation to use insulin in all hospitalized patients with blood sugars consistently over 180. 180? That number's way lower than I expected. I feel like most people don't even use sliding scale until the sugar's in the mid-200s. Mm-hmm. We asked Dr. Umpierrez about his practice, and he has some pretty strong feelings about sliding scale. I, I just think that correction doses are useless for most people in the hospital. The, the problem is when you start using sliding scales and glucose remain in the 200 or more, and you just continue to use sliding scales. I mean, that is wrong. If we're reacting to high blood sugars with just sliding scale, we never get good glycemic control. We actually have pretty good data showing that patients on sliding scale alone have a higher average glucose than patients on basal bolus insulin. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with a little bit of permissive hyperglycemia? Well, aside from not really being a thing, hyperglycemia isn't all that benign. Dang, calling me out. (laughs) When up against basal bolus regimens, sliding scale has been shown to have higher rates of badness, like wound infections, pneumonia, bacteremia. Wait, what? What does hyperglycemia have to do with more infections? We don't know for sure, but we think that hyperglycemia actually messes with neutrophil function and thus leads to more infections. So letting sugars ride in the 200s is more dangerous than I thought. Good to know. The bottom line here seems that a reactive strategy alone never gets good control, and bad control can lead to bad outcomes. Yeah, and as we've already acknowledged, there are multiple ways to achieve good control, and everybody does something a little bit different. What does Dr. Umbiera say about how he uses insulin? You have to individualize care. I mean, 70% of our surgical patients at Emory are with basal alone, and they do very well. If you just tell every surgeon to give 0.2 units per kilo before surgery, the blood sugar cruise very little hypoglycemia, very little hypoglycemia, because it's only for basal. And then you titrate. And sliding scale may work, but there's a 20-30% failure rate. The rapid surgery trial so that with sliding scales, you get more complications, more AKI, more wound infection. I feel like we're generally pretty bad at starting basal right off the bat. Any good ways to come up with a starting dose? We recommend the initial dose based on the risk of hypoglycemia, and that uh, two factors are quite important. The one is kidney function. So if the GFR is less than 60, the risk of hypoglycemia is much higher. The other is age. Older guys in the hospital, don't eat, they eat very little. 
very little. So, so in those patients, we recommend this total daily dose of 0.3 units per kilo. So now that we have an estimate of the total daily dose, we should talk about how we're going to write the insulin orders in the patient's chart. I like to take half the total daily dose of correction and make it basal. And then I turn the other half into a TID bolus regimen, usually adding about 10% to the total daily dose as I make that calculation. I'll also add sliding scale on top just to make sure that I stay on track. I do something really similar. And I think a lot of us do it this way. Interestingly, it turns out that if your patient sugars are in the low to mid 200s, there's another way to do this as well. Now, if you do basal plus or allergens like basal plus DPP4, we did that study in 280 patients, and we call it CETA hospital trial, that it was a basal plus cetagliptin, one injection of basal, one in tablet of day of cetagliptin versus basal bolus approach. And we saw no difference in glycemic control in 300 patients medicine and surgical patients in general ward. So if you ask me, I mean, my favorite approach for most people in the low 200, mid 200s, I was it's the basal plus approach because people don't need too much. And you do basal plus correction. And that makes so much sense. Remember how we talked about how DPP-4s are basically our bolus insulin? Yeah, and that's exactly how he's using DPP-4s in this case. All right, let's tee up Mrs. Lipton's situation. Time to put in some insulin orders. To start, let's add a weight-based basal regimen and continue the DPP-4 that she's on. And we'll add sliding scale on top, just as a contingency. Tyler, we covered a ton of ground in this episode. What are some of your takeaways? I think the biggest takeaway is that when it comes to oral meds, we can safely continue metformin more often than we think, especially if a patient has good kidney function and no lactate-producing conditions. After this episode, I also feel a lot more comfortable continuing or even starting DPP-4s in the hospital, as long as the patients don't have any pancreatic disease. What are some of your takeaways, Cynthia? Yeah, you know, the metformin was a really big one for me, too. I did want to add that GLP-1s also seem pretty good to continue, as long as patients don't have nausea, vomiting, or pancreatitis. And when it comes to insulin, basal is our friend, and sliding scale alone really isn't. And that's a wrap. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. A huge thank you to Dr. Guillermo Umpierrez, president-elect of the American Diabetes Association, an endocrinologist, and professor of medicine at Emory. Also, a huge thank you to Dr. Jane Weinreb, chief of endocrinology and professor of medicine at UCLA, for peer-reviewing this episode. And thanks to Dr. Mike Natter for the incredible accompanying graphic and to Max Head for audio editing. Thank you to Dr. Aaron Troy for helping Off-Air to produce this episode. Our views are our own and do not reflect the views of our affiliated institutions. 